Hey, and you can turn in your copy of God's Word to Zephaniah. Zephaniah, we're going to chapter 3 today. And man, I have uh, I've really enjoyed Zephaniah, just, just in my own personal study. Uh, it's probably not a book that you've spent a lot of time with, and I am no different in that. I've read Zephaniah before. I've never really... Uh, like studied it and did, and dug into it deeply and and I've really really enjoyed doing that over these last couple of weeks and and it's uh, of all the books we've looked at thus far in the study of the minor prophets it's the one I wish that we could spend a lot more time with. Um, if we were to like pull out a theme though for the book of Zephaniah, it would be this: the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. Um, this is not uh, new language to us. Uh, this is language we also saw in the book of Amos. Amos talked a lot about the day of the Lord, but it is a central theme for Zephaniah. And, and we're going to talk about it today and just kind of ask the question, what is the day of the Lord? And, and just to give us kind of a working definition for this, I, I think in short... Uh, it's not just one day. Um, it's not just one particular day that we see in the Scripture. Instead, instead, the day of the Lord is a term that's used throughout the Bible to describe an event in which there is a like significant, obvious display of God's power. A significant or like obvious display of God's power. Um, some would describe it as a time in which God intervenes in history to accomplish his will. I don't, really, I don't really love that definition of the day of the Lord because it implies that God is like removed from history or that God is not kind of present in the day to day, which I don't think is true. Um, I think God is deeply present in the here and now and that he's constantly like intervening in our lives and inserting himself, himself into our lives. Um, the day of the Lord though, is a day on which God facilitates or accomplishes some sort of divine action. And as I said, there's not just one day of the Lord. There are like many days of the Lord in the scriptures if we're sort of working off of that definition. Like there are many days of the Lord. In a sense, you could say that like creation is a day of the Lord. It's a day in which like his power is on display, like he has accomplished something significant that only he can do. And even though the scripture wouldn't refer to creation as the day of the Lord, um, you know, kind of working off of that basic definition of being a significant display of God's power, we could look at it as that. But it's also it's important for us to understand that days of the Lord are really never like neutral events in Scripture. They're never neutral events. They typically have both positive and negative connotations, as we'll see in just a second. So let's talk a little bit about timeline here. So we saw that in, uh, se let's see, this would have been in 722, Israel was destroyed by Assyria, right? They were exiled. They were carried away. The prophet Micah, as we talked about in our last book, the prophet Micah saw that happen. 
We've now fast-forwarded about 100 years to 620 B.C., to the time of Zephaniah, and Zephaniah is prophesying about this day of the Lord to come, and I think a part of this day of the Lord that he's talking about actually comes several decades later, somewhere around 586 BC, and that is when Judah is conquered by Babylon. 586 AD, and that's, that dates a little bit of a guess. It's kind of hard to date these exiles because it's not like there is a, it's not like the exile happened on October 1st of 586, right? There, there are probably like waves of exile that take place, like several kind of mass deportations uh, that happen. And so that's just kind of a guess, but there's probably like a 10, 15 year period in which people are being exiled. So, so that just gives us a little bit of a sense of timeline here. If we're talking about the exile begins somewhere around 722 with the northern kingdom of Israel all the way to 586 with Judah being captured by Babylon. Uh, Babylon also is not something that we've never heard of before in the pages of Scripture. It's not like Babylon is some new empire that has suddenly arisen to power. Uh, We actually first hear about Babylon in the pages of Scripture all the way back in Genesis 11, except it's not called Babylon there in your Bible. It's actually called by its Hebrew name, which is Babel or Babel. And if you remember the story of Babel, right, they're building the city, aren't they? They're building the city and they have this great idea that they're going to um, take their brick-making ability and parlay that into the, the largest tower that they can possibly think of, which is, in their mind, a tower that just goes all the way into the heavens, right? In their mind, like, God is up there somewhere in the heavens and we're going we're gonna to build all the way up there and once we get up there, we're going to be like God, right? We're going we're gonna to ascend to that place, um, and, and so their mindset is something to the effect of that, that it's God's position. It's like his location that makes him God. It's like his ability to kind of look down and see everything. And if we could just get up there, then we will be like him. So this is no different from like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Who also like think, well, we're going to eat this fruit. Like we're, we're going to do this thing and it's somehow going to make us like God. So, so this is where we first see Babylon is all the way back in Genesis 11. And if you remember the story, they start building this tower and the Lord intervenes, doesn't he? Right? There is, there is sort of a day of the Lord that happens there in Genesis 11 where God comes in and it says he confuses their languages. Before that time, they were speaking one language and this group of people all of a sudden start speaking different languages. Did that happen in an instant? Did that happen over a period of several years? We don't know for sure. But we know their languages become confused, and they ultimately abandon the building of this tower. But Dr. Tim Mackey says that Babylon, from that point forward, kind of becomes an archetype or a metaphor for empires in the Bible. And the next significant empire that we see in the book of Genesis is Egypt, Right? We first see it with Joseph in Egypt. We talked about Joseph a few weeks ago. Uh, Joseph rises to prominence and power. He saves uh, his father's family. Uh, they move to Egypt and they procreate and re- they're fruitful and they multiply. And within a, a, a very short amount of time, there are just thousands upon thousands of Hebrews 
living in Egypt to the point where the Egyptian monarchy becomes concerned that these people are so numerous, they're going to rise up and rebel, and, and they're going to take over our country. And so they enslave them. The Hebrew people become slaves in Egypt, and that takes us into the book of Exodus with the story of Moses, who is then sent to uh, call Pharaoh to release the, or the Hebrews and, and like free them from their slavery in Egypt. And, and how does God do that? Like, yes, he sends Moses, but how does he accomplish that feat? He accomplishes it through a, an event that is called Passover. And what's interesting is after Passover happens, Israel, the Jewish people, they begin to refer to Passover as the day or that day. Like they think of it as the day of the Lord. This is when God intervened in our situation and saved us from the slavery that we were in. Now, I mentioned earlier that these are never neutral events, right? So for Egypt, it's a terrible day, right? Their whole army is decimated. Uh, by all accounts, their, their Pharaoh, their king, is killed in the process, right? All of the firstborn children and animals in the land are dead. They've gone through this season of plagues that had to have been horrendous. Like, like this is bad news for Egypt. For Israel, however, it's a wonderful day, right? They are, they are saved. They're freed from their slavery. They're ultimately given a new land and become their own distinct people um, where they continue to flourish and multiply. So the day of the Lord, not just one day, not just one event. Um, the Hebrew people in Amos are probably looking back to an event like Passover and if you recall in Amos' book, the people are going, oh, we would love for the day of the Lord to come again. And Amos goes, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're, like, you're thinking of this where God rescued you and saved you. But don't you realize if the day of the Lord happens now, you're going to be the Egypt in this equation. Right? Because of your sin, because in, in, in Amos, because of the ways that you've crushed and oppressed the poor. Like that's the consistent thing. But it's because you haven't loved your neighbor as yourself, because you have not embodied the great commandment, the Shema, you haven't embodied the law of God, you've turned away from the Lord and you've pursued your own path. And so as a result, guys, if the day of the Lord occurs, which it ultimately does for the people that Amos was speaking to, for the northern kingdom of Israel, it happens. And it's not a good day for them, right? It is a good day for Assyria, though, right? They capture some land. They take over a whole people group. They gain more wealth for themselves. But then what happens, right? Assyria is ultimately overtaken by Babylon. Great day for Babylon. Bad day for Assyria. So these days are never neutral, and we can't look at all of these events and call them all the day of the Lord. Um, we're really looking for kind of like supernatural action on the part of God in these moments. Um, so, so this is sort of the timeline that we're thinking of as we get into today's text. And um, a question we might ask is, is, is like, why do some people have a good day of the Lord and why do other people have a bad day of the Lord? And we might be inclined to say something like, well, you know, God blesses good people and he curses bad people. But that doesn't really make sense because the, the, the case that Scripture consistently makes is that no one's really good. 
Like, no one's really worthy of God blessing them. Like, was Israel good when they were in Egypt? And, and that's why God sent Moses and, and he f- accomplished this incredible feat with Passover in order to save them? Is it because they were good people? Well, well no, they, they, they certainly weren't sinless. And they proved that just as soon as they got out into the desert, right? They, they turned their backs on the Lord. They started worshiping other gods. It happened almost instantaneously. Was Babylon or Assyria good? No, that, that's not what's going on. Um, so there's, there's much more to that question um, or the answer to that question than a simple like good prevails and evil perishes. On another hand, it can also seem like maybe God just chooses, right? That God just chooses who he wants to bless and who he wants to punish. I mean, he is sovereign after all. He can do whatever he wants. And so he does seem to just choose Israel to be his people. Um, But that answer is still a tad bit too simplistic. We don't get the sense in Scripture that God is just like arbitrarily choosing or not choosing things based on whatever side of the bed he happened to wake up on that day, that there's, there's more to it than that. And, and I think chapter one of Zephaniah actually gave us a clue here. Uh, in, in, in verse four of chapter one, God uh, says through Zephaniah, uh, this message of doom, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And then he tells us why in the um, verses that come after that. He tells us that it's because of the worship of false gods, and he's going to cut off the false priests and those who are engaged in religious syncretism like we talked about last week. But then we get down to verse 6, and he gives us sort of a summation statement, and it's this, those who have turned back from following the Lord who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. He said that those are the people he's going to cut off from the land. Like that group of people who have turned their back on God, who don't seek the Lord, who don't inquire of the Lord. And I really think that that's at the root of all of this. It's not sinlessness that God is necessarily looking for. He knows that people can't do that on their own. Right? Even in the law of Moses, the, the law that the Hebrew people lived under for so long, like the critical annual event was known as the Day of Atonement, which was the day where animals would be sacrificed to pay for the sin of all the people. They were incapable, no matter how much they sought the Lord, no matter how much they tried, they were incapable of living up to the standard of the law. So God's not necessarily looking for perfection or sinlessness here. He's looking for faithfulness. He's looking for faithfulness. They have turned their back on me. They don't seek me. They don't inquire of me. They've abandoned relationship with me. It's not that they aren't doing God's will. It's like they don't even want to know God so that they can do his will. Everything here does seem to hinge on Israel's relationship to God and to what extent they are seeking the Lord. There are times when they are seeking the Lord and he blesses them and prospers them because they're trying to be obedient to him. And, 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 and such is the case, I think, in a season like Passover or them taking the land of Canaan. There are other times, though, where God raises up other nations over them because they have abandoned the Lord. It's not because Babylon or Assyria are good or because God wants to bless 
those nations. It's because his chosen people have elected to turn their back on him and to not be faithful to him. So now with all of that in mind, I want to look at today's text. Chapter 1 of Zephaniah is that prophecy of the coming day of the Lord. Chapter 2 also echoes a lot of what we saw in Amos, because if you remember the first part of Amos, he describes all the other nations that are going to be affected by the day of the Lord. Chapter 2 of Amos is very similar in that regard. He mentions all of these other nations that are going to suffer as a part of this. But then chapter 3 does that thing that we've talked about before that all these other prophets have done where they issue these warnings of doom and then they turn and say, but everything's going to be okay. So so look with me, verse 9 of chapter 3. For at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you've rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst, and you shall never again fear evil. The word of the Lord. All right, so verse 9 takes us all the way back here to Genesis 11, doesn't it? Back to the Tower of Babel. And it almost describes like a reversal of what happens at the Tower of Babel, right? What did he say? Like, I am going to change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech. I'm going to change how they talk. But notice, this isn't God simply saying, I'm going to make them all speak the same human language again. No, the thing in view here is really like the content of their speech. What are they talking about? What's coming out of their lips? This pure speech is speech that calls upon the name of the Lord, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord in unity. So the exact opposite of the charge that was made back in chapter 1 of they have turned from following the Lord like they have turned back from him, those people who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. This is like the opposite of this. This is describing a people who do call upon the name of the Lord, who do serve him with one accord. And and it's because of something that God has done. I will do this. I will change their speech. And I will make them this kind of people. This is a people who are inquiring of God, who are calling upon him. Look at verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame 
because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, and they shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. There shall be uh, found, there shall, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That sounds amazing. That sounds like a life anybody would want. Notice this is not describing a people who are sinless, but who have nonetheless been purified. Like they have been, in a sense, sanctified. They've been justified. These are people who have rebelled against the Lord, but who will not be put to shame because of their deeds. Instead, the proudly exultant ones, which I take to mean like the hard-hearted, shameless, stubborn ones who refuse to acknowledge the Lord no matter what, will simply be removed from the mix, according to Zephaniah. They will be taken away. And what will be left is a people who are lowly and humble and who find their strength and their safety in the name of the Lord. This is the picture that Zephaniah is painting. Look at verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, not not a human king, notice, the king of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So the result of all of this is worship to God. And why wouldn't you if, if you should be shamed and punished, but God has instead refrained from those things? Like if you are guilty and you should receive a sentence for your guilt, but instead it's been taking, taken away, like that should naturally result in joy and like worship to the one who's accomplished that thing on your behalf. But it isn't simply that God has like chosen to offer some leniency for your sin. Instead, verse 15, the Lord has taken these judgments away. He's taken away the judgments against you. The verdicts that had been levied against your sin are being fully expunged. So, so the natural response, I think, of a person who experiences something like this is joy, gratitude, thankfulness, and worship to the one who has facilitated this absolution, it produces the pure speech of a people who call on the name of the Lord. Turn with me real quick over to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, probably uh, the most famous passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 6, this, this is not going to be on the screen. Uh, Isaiah was writing about 100 years before Zephaniah. Uh, he would have been a contemporary of Micah. And... Um, this is his famous vision in chapter 6 where he famously says, here I am, send me. Um, if you grew up in a Baptist church, this is the text you use for a, a sermon on missions. <laughs> um, but we're going to look at another part of that passage that gets overlooked a little bit. Uh, so what happens here in chapter 6 is Isaiah has this vision of the throne room of God. He's 
kind of sees himself in the throne room of God. And all the angels are bowing down before the Lord, singing, holy, holy, holy. And then in verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." So, so the word that gets translated lips there, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips, is the exact same Hebrew word that gets translated as speech in Zephaniah. When God says, I will give them a pure speech, Isaiah says, I don't have pure speech. I have unclean speech. And so in encountering the presence of God, he immediately becomes deeply aware of Not only his own sin, but also like the fact that he just swims in a sea of sinfulness, in a sea of sinful people. Now, remember in Zephaniah, this unclean speech is, he's not like talking about like cussing or dirty jokes or that kind of thing. Certainly the scripture doesn't like commend that kind of thing to us. That's just not what we're talking about here. It's it's a mouth that doesn't call upon the Lord, like that doesn't acknowledge the Lord, doesn't inquire of the Lord. So Isaiah, one of the greatest and most faithful prophets in the scripture, encounters God and says, woe is me. The Hebrew there is oy which in Yiddish is just oy vey. Woe is me, right? When encountering a holy God, I don't call upon the Lord. I am a man of unclean lips. I don't acknowledge the Lord, right? I don't inquire of the Lord. So even Isaiah is guilty here. But then what happens? Verse 6, then one of the seraphim, that's one of the angels, one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So it isn't that Isaiah is like suddenly rendered a sinless person in the presence of God. Instead, the guilt that he has for his own sin is removed. It's removed because his sin has been atoned for. It's been paid for. His debt has been settled. So much Old Testament prophecy has both immediate connotations as well as like future connotations. And that's exactly what we're seeing here in Zephaniah as well. Like Zephaniah 1 in talking about the day, that day, the day of the Lord, is in many ways talking about an immediate connotation in which you guys are going to be conquered by Babylon and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed and it is not going to be a good day. But there is this future day of the Lord to come that is going to be an incredible day and it's a day in which your sin which you are completely guilty of, and I am completely guilty of, and and which you should be shamed and punished and sentenced for, is going to be removed. And a people who have not inquired of the Lord, who haven't been faithful to him, who haven't called on him, they're going to have their lips like changed, their speech changed. The the use of the coal in Isaiah is, I think, so appropriate because, like, while we might think of that as like a a burning thing that would like 
harm or do violence to something. So often when fire is talked about in the scripture, it's, it's talked about as being like a purifying thing, like it's a refining thing in the way that it's used in like, you know, metal work, in the way that um, steel is sort of refined into um, the finished product where it becomes like a pure thing. So we see both the immediate connotation as well as these future expectations. And, and so part of what Zephaniah is getting at here, I think, is that God is going to preserve a remnant of Judah. And Judah's not going to be wiped off the map in the way that Israel was wiped off the map. right? The wicked are going to be taken away, like the faithless pagan priests are going to be dealt with. But there is going to be a remnant who is ultimately going to return to the land after this great ordeal, and they're going to return as a people who are lowly and humble, who aren't what they used to be, who don't have the wealth they once had, who don't have the stuff, the the place even, that they once had. They're going to have to rebuild it. By the way, there's prophecy also in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 13, about how God's going to raise up the Persians to overtake Babylon, and that's ultimately what allows the people to return to the land. But the future expectation here is not just that a people could come back to this one place, but instead that there is going to be this future day of the Lord that will produce a people of God whose guilt has been taken away and who are rendered sinless and fearless as a result. And we believe that this is what God is accomplishing through Christ because this motif carries over into the New Testament, into, in particular, the book of Revelation, in talking about God's coming kingdom and the way that God is going to set up his eternal kingdom with the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem and how his people will dwell with him as his beloved children forever. And are there any of us who, if we stood before the Lord, would not also say, oy vey, right? Like, oh my God, what, who am I? Like, what, what have I done? We all have sin. We all have guilt. We all have shame. But the gospel is that Christ's death and resurrection is like this burning coal that touches our hearts and takes away our guilt and shame. And the process of restoration has now been set into motion. Like God is, through Jesus, preserving a remnant of guiltless people whose sin has been atoned for, and who will ultimately get to come back to their true home, which is not some human nation or country, but is the literal kingdom of God. And I say come back because it is a return to what the original intent was, that that we would dwell with God, go all the way back to the garden, right? The, The Lord being present with the man and the woman, and then them ruining the whole relationship. So God's not creating some new thing, right? God is ultimately bringing us back to the place we really belong, the place that he originally created for us to be. He's bringing us home. And this is why the scripture talks so much about like worrying about worldly things, right? Or or being in love with the world. 
what God wants us to understand and like to hold dear is this like feeling of exile, is this feeling of, I don't really belong here, right? All of the brokenness that I see in the world and all of like the, the anxiety or the depression or the sadness or the hurt that I feel or that I've experienced or that I see around me, none of that stuff is as it should be. And, and God's not just going to come and like take it away. God's going to help us find our true place. And it's a place where none of that stuff exists, not just where it's been removed, but, but where it's, it's just gone. It's, it's not a place where I, I like don't experience bad things anymore, but still have to deal with the, the repercussions of things that ha- have happened in my past. It's, it's this same thing with sin, where it's like our sin is literally like the guilt that we have is literally removed. It's not there anymore. This is what was severed in the garden, and it is what God is bringing back together. And in God's kingdom, the stubborn, the haughty, the exultant ones, the ones who think that they can become like God, the ones who don't inquire of him, don't care about him, don't want him, they're taken away. And those who are left are those who find their refuge, not in themselves or in money or in this world or in material possessions, but in the name of the Lord. Who gets to be a part of this? The good news is that the answer is not people who are perfect. The answer is those who seek the Lord. It's not people who naturally have clean lips. It's those who through Christ have their speech purified. The New Testament writers, I think, would define that as faith. As faith in Christ. Those who are truly seeking the way of the gospel. And even though I can't see it all, even though I don't understand it all, I'm going to trust that what Jesus has accomplished on the cross actually has the power and ability to purify the things that I've done. People who aren't seeking to save themselves, but those who are faithfully looking to the Lord to save them. Let me close with verse 14 and 15. This picture is a picture of worship. Like that if we truly understand what Christ has done for us, like the, the restoration that he has set in motion, then it should start to produce all of this fruit within us. We may not see it perfectly, but but what should happen is that these things start to become more present and prevalent in our lives. Joy, fearlessness, less worry, less anxiety. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies the enemy, the king of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. Just like in the garden. It's not a human king. It's not David. It is the true king. And you shall never again fear evil. Ever.
This is the gospel, is it not? This is what Jesus came to accomplish. And it's not something that is waiting to be done, even though there is a future expectation. The the language suggests that it is done, that it is finished, like like the outcome has been sealed. We're We're not waiting to see what is going to happen. We know what is going to happen. And just like what Zephaniah calls the people to, we are also called to, which is to wait on the Lord, to wait on him, to be quiet, and to wait. So let us go to him in prayer this morning as we consider these things. Father, Father, I pray that this morning as we read your Holy Scripture that you would Write on our hearts the truths that you would have us imbibe, Father, the things that you would have us take in and, and hold as true. Father, help us to, to be overcome by the joy of your gospel, by the... the awesomeness of how we see the things that Jesus accomplished, prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years before his advent. And God, we pray that that there would be this burden lifted from us of day-to-day life and, and the cares and the worries of this world Lord, your scripture indicates that your desire is that we would not have to shoulder those things, but that your gospel would actually ease the burden so that we could be a people who are fearless and who are not anxious about worldly things, but instead are looking to heavenly things, the things of your kingdom, the things of Christ. Father, write these truths on our hearts and minds. Help us to live them, to walk in them, to abide in them. And may they truly change us. God, help us to be a people who desperately seek you, who desperately inquire of you, who desperately desire faithfulness to you. We thank you for the ways that you forgive us, of the, of the guilt that we all have and how you create within us like new hearts, how you make us new people who are purified of those things, who are free from the debt that we owe because our sin has been atoned for. Thank you, Lord. It's in your name. Amen.